IndieCast is presented by Uproxx's Indie Mixtape. Hello everyone and welcome to IndieCast. On this show we talk about the biggest indie news of the week, we review albums, and we hash out trends. In this episode we induct four new albums into the IndieCast Hall of Fame. My name is Stephen Hyden, and I'm joined by my friend and co-host, he can't get enough of Lakini's Juice, Ian Cohen. Ian, how are you? More wine, more skin. That is the IndieCast way today. Um, <laughs> I, we are really just going off on a limb and assuming that uh, the average IndieCast listener knows the song Lakini's Juice. But then again, like people were like straight up asking us to do an entire live episode. They're going to be like so disappointed when we switch to other topics in 30, like in, you know, in 20, 30 minutes, it's like, well, maybe we won't though. Maybe we'll just get on a wavelength talking about throwing copper where, uh, we're just going to like boot the IndyCast hall of fame to the next episode. Uh, I think it's hilarious that we're talking about live L I V E the nineties alt rock band and not live L I V period E the acclaimed, Indie R&B Act, one of the most acclaimed albums of uh, early 2023 so far, but I guess that's how we roll here on IndieCast. Yeah. If you're wondering why we're why we're talking about live so much, there was an amazing story. I guess it was it went up last weekend. Yeah, it was a, that was like a Saturday Sunday read for me. That was like sit down, get your coffee, like we're we're like we're we're really digging in here. This is a long read. So it was right after we posted last week's episode but it's good because we needed a week to process this amazing story that went up on rolling stone last weekend about the band live and it's funny because i feel like you and i we've been talking about live weirdly for the past few weeks if you you had a tweet <laughs> where you called lakini's juice like the worst the riff worst. of all time, and that got like more engagement than like actual journalism I post. But then, it, yeah, yeah, I, but I love that shit. Yeah, I do. Like, if some publication wants to pay me money to like talk about Lakini's juice, like by all means, like your TED talk on Lakini's juice, they're gonna, they're gonna bring Ian in. We're gonna fly him in. Yeah, to discuss the uh, what? What's that album? Secret Secret Samadhi. Secret somebody. It, it reminds me, like, I don't think they made this commercial, but, like, around that time when Arrested Development, the band, made that album, Zingalama Dooney, they, like, had a commercial on MTV where they just, like, said the album title so people knew how to pronounce it. Yeah. Well, people were ready for Secret Samadhi because that was the follow-up to Throwing Copper. People were like, we need more live in uh, the mid-'90s. Anyway, you're probably wondering, like, why is Rolling Stone doing a story on live in, in, in 2023. Well, it turns out that this band has had an insane amount of drama. One could say that they're selling the drama uh, in the past few years. So I'm going to run down this. I, I, I feel like I want to read this article on this episode because it's so good. You have to look this up. Uh, maybe pause this episode and go read this story quick. Uh, basically, what happened is that a con man, an alleged con man, yeah, right, alleged con man, an alleged like stalker. Yeah, there, and, there's uh, like some dark shit going on with this guy. 
He's like a James Spader character from the 80s, this, this guy. Just just a monster. Uh, but anyway, this, this alleged con man, he befriends the guitarist of live, Chad Taylor. And he gets him to invest in all these companies. There's like a fiber optics company that he invested in. And anyway, the guy's a con man. And like they lose a bunch of money with this guy. And... So there's that going on. Like, the band is just being swindled. So you have that drama. And then uh, the drummer in the band is apparently now, like, a huge Trump supporter and QAnon guy who also attends the AVN Awards. Yeah, that's, like, the, plus. That's the first thing they mention about this guy, which I think every alt-rock band from the 90s has at least one anti-vaxxer or flat earther in the band. It's probably the drummer. Yeah, it's probably the drummer. So there's that. Uh, apparently, Ed Kowalczyk, who, if you know anyone in Live, it's Ed Kowalczyk. Mm-hmm. And, like, by the way, I was a fan of Live in uh, the 90s. I, I owned Throwing Copper. I saw Throwing Copper. I saw that tour. I had a Throwing Copper tour t shirt. Ugliest t shirt, like, I've the, ever the seen. Ug- <laughs> the ugliest uh, tour t shirt of all time. Um, I didn't know that there were two guys named Chad in the band. Oh. I, di- I didn't realize that either. Shit. Although, like, I think, okay, so I'm sorry. This is like a very scattered description of the story. There's just so much information. Because, like, Ed Kowalczyk, apparently he was out of life for a while, and their new lead singer was the son of the owner of, like, what, what the basketball Charlotte team? The Charlotte Hornets. So, <laughs> yeah, the, 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 this guy, if you thought, like, James Dolan was, like, you know, like doing like useless ass stuff with his money. You have this guy, and I've never heard this version of live, but it, George Shin, the guy who owns the Charlotte Hornets, his son replaced Ed Kowalczyk. Did he get like that bald head with the rat tail thing going on? Like, I don't know. Like, <laughs> I, I, if I'm seeing live, I want to see Ed, I want to see Ed, like prime Ed, like no shirt, even though he like looks like he's never been in a gym. He's definitely not in that subcategory of swole rockers. He had not followed the Trent Reznor uh, path. Yeah, that, 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 that part, it was just, I think you're right. And like, we kind of have to be scattered about this because like, there are just so many interesting factoids that pop up and it's just like, Oh, by the way, the owner of the Charlotte Hornets kids, he replaced live. And also, you know, did you know that they started another band with like two dudes from Candlebox? Yes, exactly. The cho- was it like the Chosen Few? I think was the name of that band. It was like a, it was a '90s supergroup. It was something. It was like either the Precious Few or the Chosen Few. I feel like the Precious Few sounds more. I feel like that sounds more like a live Candlebox uh, meeting of the minds. So, are you sure you didn't review the Precious Few for Pitchfork like in 2011? Is, is it possible that <laughs> if we look in the archives, there's an Ian Cohen review of the live? Candlebox supergroup. Uh, there's a lot of shit I forget reviewing from that time, but if I had done that, I would have definitely known it. Uh, so, anyway, yeah. So, the the son of the owner of the Charlotte Hornets, he was the singer alive, but then he's out of the band, and now Ed Kowalczyk, at some point, was back in the band, and then he fired the other three guys in the band. So now Live is Ed Kowalczyk and three hired guns trying to put their career back together, playing Lakini's Juice in casinos mm-hmm. all across the country. Not in, like, Atlantic City or Vegas. More like, you know, like, 
like the like sort of like the Indian casinos, yeah. like in upstate Wisconsin or you know Montana, like those kind of markets. They they kindly call them tertiary markets because like I, I <laughs> like I, I say secondary markets sometimes when writing about music to like give people a sense of like what it's like to actually tour through say Scranton. Like this is like tertiary. This is like actual shit town USA. Yeah. So anyway, this story it. It's amazing, and it's basically about how this band completely fell apart in their era of, you know, when they should just be going out and, you know, playing greatest hits tours. Like, I saw live, I've seen live, in like, in the last three or four years, they, they toured with Counting Crows, I think, right before the pandemic. So I saw the classic lineup <laughs> if we could, which i guess we'll call it now yeah. the classic lineup of live you know and they and i don't know I, and maybe this is just me and i think I, and you too i think we're on the same level here that you know we we talk about new bands up and coming bands and it's important to talk about that you interview them you uh, want to expose them to a larger audience and it's great but i really think that the most fascinating bands are bands like this that are about 20 years past their commercial peak, but they're still together. And then there's all this weirdness that comes in. Like there's no new band that has as gripping a backstory right now as, as live. Like I, I, <laughs> I want another story on this band in a year. Like I'm curious because there's still hope that maybe they can get back together. Like the, the Chad Taylor, the guitarist, who is either a monster or a victim. Like yeah. in the story, it's not clear. It's like, depending on who you talk to, this guy is either like a narcissist or he's like a babe in the woods. Like you don't know which one it is, but I can't get enough of this. I did not leave this article with a lot of hope. I'll tell you that. Like I'm like legit worried for on Chad's behalf. Like he's, like six <laughs> figures in the hole in legal fees, like you know, set substance problems, and you know, yeah. it's it, it's very clear that um, regardless of like who's right or wrong, you could get the sense that the other two guys, like Patrick and Chad, the other guys in live, are like kind of you know, kind of kissing Ed's ass. Like, yeah, Chad didn't write any of these songs, and like, look, if you're you know, if you want, to, if you wanted to, like increase the likelihood that you're gonna play like selling the drama and freaks and dolphins cry and all the other beloved uh songs from live in the future you're gonna side with ed kowalczyk who by the way like if you know anything about live like you were saying it's like you know ed kowalczyk being shirtless having a bald head and rat tail and making songs called dolphins cry you wouldn't expect a live article in 2023 to like make him seem like the most reasonable person in the group. Like he comes That's off really twist. well. <laughs> well, not really well, but you know, but relatively well. Relatively well. well. Let, let, let's say that. I mean, you know, the thing with a band like this is that in a year or two or, or five years, Live Nation is going to show up and they're going to say, look, it's the. Uh, 35th anniversary of throwing copper. Uh, we're going to package you with Candlebox and Toad the Wet Sprocket, Local H, maybe a couple other bands. We're going to Everclear's got to be on that, Bill. Everclear. By the way, and again, like, look, 
I just want to read this entire article because it's so good. But there's a graph in that article where it describes Everclear as like a B-list band. Yeah, did not and, did not appreciate that. Yeah, it, it, and the implication is that Live was slumming by touring with Everclear, and it just made me think like. Is Everclear slumming going with Live, or is Live slumming going with Everclear? Like, what is the uh, sort of hierarchy there? Because I kind of feel like if you did a poll Mm -hmm. now, I I think Everclear would have a higher Q rating. Oh, absolutely. Than than Live. Absolutely. I've I've heard band. I've seen like a number of bands, not like to the degree of Third Eye Blind, but like Rep Everclear is like, yeah, Santa Monica, good song. Like uh, live, it, there's such a creation of the '90s. It's in, it's like impossible <laughs> to like retcon this band, even in the way that like Hootie or uh, Counting Crow, like I mean, Counting Crow is a great band. Don't get me wrong, but like you know, there there are ways to consider bands like the them outside of the 90s whereas live they are such a creation of that void between like Kurt Cobain dying and like you know all the other trends of the late 90s like new metal boy bands like you know electronic or whatever like this band can only be on the cover of Rolling Stone winning a readers poll in 1996 there is no other way yeah they are the the manifestation of mid 90s culture right mm-hmm. you have all the strands coming together like like you just said and you know i feel like it's possible to like rehab stone temple pilots and you know they've been rehabbed to some degree live is probably a bridge too far i don't even think you know and i'll say this as someone who still has some appreciation for throwing copper maybe it's just because it's nostalgia for me but uh, <laughs> I was just thinking about like right, like pitching like a Sunday pitchfork review on throwing copper. Yeah, and, I've and, done, and I've done like, that with like sixteen stone. <laughs> I've done that with a lot of like end of alt rock, uh, mid nineties albums, and have gotten no green light just yet. But I, 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 I feel like even sixteen stone is easier to rehab than than throwing copper at this point because mm-hmm. I think people will look at Bush and they'll be like, well, they were mistreated a little yeah. bit in their time they, they wrote catchy songs they have you know? some self-awareness They're, too i think that like if you have any modicum of self-awareness you can definitely be rehabbed as a 90s alt rock person but like live you just know that like ed kowalczyk <laughs> this is a band with like out a sense of humor at all yeah yeah <laughs> yeah bush never there's no Lakini's juice in Bush's catalog. <laughs> There's no equivalent to that. There's no Dolphin's Cry in in, in their catalog. Um, wow, we spent 15 minutes on yeah, live. But that said, uh, we're, we're giving the people what they want. This is like, when we move on, this is like when Clap Your Hands Say Yeah opened up for the National. Like, all of our longtime readers are just going to, like, check out because they, they, get, they got what they came for. Yeah, that's true. Yep. This is an important IndieCast investigation. <laughs> um, one thing I wanted to talk to you about was Skrillex. Oh. Uh, we're, we're bringing out the big guns here <laughs> in our banter. Because Skrillex, uh, he's having a moment right now. That he, he just put out two new albums, Quest for Fire and Don't Get Too Close. One is, I guess more in his sort of dubstep wheelhouse. And the other one 
I guess is like a hip hop record. Yeah, kind of a don't e- tell me newish emo rap type stuff. Yeah, yeah. Don't don't tell me which one is which. I, <laughs> I, I I have no idea. I just know one is kind of a rap record and one is more of a bro strip record. And it just made me think about how you know we're ten years removed now from the early two thousand tens, and it seems like we're already getting some two thousand tens nostalgia. Like there there was a uh, a 10th anniversary edition of Random Access Memories, the Daft Punk record that was announced this week. You have two new Skrillex records. You shared with me uh, the Spin article from 2012 that I remember from the time, but I have not thought about since, where they ranked the top 100 guitarists of all time, and Skrillex was number 100, Mm -hmm. uh, even though he does not play guitar. Well, did he? I, I, uh, look, I don't know a ton about his like old emo band, for, like his old Florida metalcore emo band. I don't remember if he played guitar in that band, though. Well, I if he did play guitar in the band, yeah. it's beside the point. Yeah, I think the idea <laughs> was that it was forwarding an idea that was very common in the early 2010s among music critics that dubstep, electronic music was taking over music and that this was like the new rock music. Mm-hmm. And... It just made me think about how that didn't happen, for one thing. <laughs> that dubstep was essentially absorbed into pop music. So you started hearing big drops in like Justin Bieber songs you know, within a few years of the Skrillex, uh, uh, you know, epic, you know, mm-hmm. epoch in the early uh, 2010s. Um, but I just wonder, like, was that the last time that people talked about, like, an insurgent music movement taking over the culture in a dramatic way, you know, the way that we think about grunge doing that or <laughs> new metal doing that. Cause I just feel like, I mean, music obviously has changed, but it's not dramatic. Mm-hmm. You know, there's not, it doesn't feel like there are these easily pinpoint pinpointable sea changes in, in the way that there was, in the 20th century, you know, and I feel like music critics always want to like invent that, mm-hmm. you know, and they, they want to will that into happening. And obviously electronic music was a big part of music in the 2010s and still is. I mean, there's no question about that, but it's not like, oh, the the new guitarists are, are, are turntablists now or something. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I, am, am I wrong? Because I, I just feel like we don't talk about music that way anymore because people just know that it's kind of just like one big blob (laughs) and there's changes, but it's not this sort of easily followable, followable. That's not a word. It's not this easily, yeah, (laughs) yeah, easily definable narrative in the way that it used to be. Yeah. I I also don't think like, you know, that article from 2012, I brought it up because I was reviewing a screaming females album and, um, yeah, I mean, like, that is a real-time capsule of, like, early 2010s thinking, which is kind of an update on, like, late 90s thinking. I don't think there's a framework anymore of, like, you know, this version of music is overtaking rock music as, like, the sound of youth culture. Because, like, I don't think most people would, like, even posit the possibility that, like, rock music is something that can be, like, you know, like have a, have a coup staged on it. But, um, <laughs> right. yeah, I, I, I think with like this, the Skrillex reappraisal or whatever, or, you know, just random access memories coming back. I mean, like, look, it's been 10 years. We're in a reflective mood about it, but what I was wondering, like EDM or bro step or whatever you want to call it. I mean, 
that was such a massive part of like the 2010s ecosystem. Um, I mean, and also you would get like has the EDM like festival bubble burst articles happening like several years prior to the pandemic. Um, but I think with like Skrillex specifically, like the fact that he was in a rock band makes him a lot easier to kind of retrofit into, you know, critics list or whatever. You could see the trial balloons being floated, you know, uh, during the late 2010s of like, how are we going to account for EDM uh, when we make the future canon, similar to like how you see some 70s or 80s lists in the modern day, like put disco or like early hip hop albums in there, even though like those genres really weren't geared towards like albums at that time. There's going to be like when you get like a future 2010s list, they're going to put some EDM albums in there. You're going to get some Avicii. You're going to get some Skrillex. And um I mean, if you really want to be honest about, like, what was pop at the time. And, you know, like, I listened to those two Skrillex albums, and I'm thinking to myself, like, yeah, um, I get they're good for what... Like, I, I think his heart's in the right place, and also, like, I have no interest in, like, even trying to pretend, uh, you know, like, I can get down with this stuff. Like, it, I just... When I was at Coachella during those years, I avoided the Sahara tent, um emo like the kind of emo that he makes is totally outside my wheelhouse um the kind of rap he likes to, except for the song he does with like float on um yeah that it's just totally outside there and you know what I, this strikes me as something that as we you can tell from the fact we're doing an indie cast hall of fame episode there's not a ton going on right now so this is just going to be something we talk about for two weeks and then um, I don't know. Maybe we talk about Skrillex for memory hold albums of uh, 2023. But that being said, he did perform like a sold out Madison Square Garden gig, like with like five minutes notice. So, yeah, I mean, you know, he is classic rock for people who are, <laughs> you know, 23 years old. You know, like yeah. this is the set. I mean, it definitely like. And I always use this uh, framework to define whatever is like the definitive music of a, of a particular era but like if you were making a documentary about 2011 20 or 2012 like that era it would you'd probably pick a skrillex song oh, yeah. i mean it it is so of that time and it's interesting just getting uh this perspective on it you know 10 years on i mean what what's striking about pop music now is how static it is mm-hmm. that the biggest people in pop were kind of the biggest people 10 years ago, you know, like Taylor Swift, Beyonce, Adele, you know, there are younger stars that have come up, but I feel like, uh, there hasn't been as much movement at the top as you would expect. You know, Drake is still really big. You know, the weekend, (laughs) I guess is bigger than ever. A lot. He's, he's a lot bigger now. I mean, he started at that time. Uh, but, uh, Again, this idea of like every ten years we're going to have this movement that completely changes music, like that has not happened. Like you could talk about small changes that that have occurred, but like the sweeping changes that we would use to define you know different eras in the past, I feel like that has not happened in music, and it's just interesting. And I and I don't know if that's because things are just decentralized now. Like you can listen to what you want to listen to. So hmm. it, it it's harder to say like, well, I can't, you know, I 
I, I heard Poison on the radio this week, and now it's Nirvana. Uh, you know, it's like if you like Poison, you can just listen to Poison now, like all the time. <laughs> you don't have to rely on like major media centers playing music for you, and that's going to change uh, what your listening habits are. So I don't know. This is very think PC right now. Giving the people Maybe what we, we want. Yeah, so let's get to our mailbag segment. This letter this week is amazing. It's very short. <laughs> it's short and to the point, which is what we like. Uh, do you want to read this letter, Ian? I, I, I do. So this comes from Kevin in Carroll Stream, Illinois. Uh, and Kevin just puts it thusly, Incubus, yay or nay. <laughs> That's it. Okay, well, thank you, Kevin. I think Kevin's written in before. Carroll Stream, Illinois. The, I, I've heard that city... And the, the, we can't have multiple listeners in Carroll Stream, Illinois. Uh, maybe maybe that, that's like our version of the tertiary markets that Live is playing in right now. Like we're <laughs> we can't hit up like uh, Chicago or even like Buffalo Grove, but like Carroll Stream, that's us. So, yay or nay? I'm really curious to hear what you have to say about this. Yeah. Uh, are you, cause I feel like you might be yay, right? Are you yay on, on Incubus? <laughs> More like succubus. Am I right? That, that one never gets fucking old. Um, yeah. Like with Incubus, like they're a sort of band that, um, the, <laughs> I won't like, I, I'll spare the details, but like there are certain songs that, um, you know, I recall like very vivid memories of like, I am way too fucking high right now. And like, uh, among them are like Dave Matthews Band, Crush, Gomez's In Our Gun, and Incubus Wish You Were Here. Like, I heard that song for the first time in like my last year of college, and I thought, like, this is such a fucking profoundly beautiful expression. Like, th- th- this is incredible. And like, yeah, it's like maybe I need to like just uh, chill for the night. Um, it, with that, like, Incubus is like in this subset of bands where. It's like fun to say I like them on like Twitter, you know, like they, they're closely enough associated with like bands I actually like. Um, and, you know, they have enough of a credibility deficit, but like enough good things about them where you can make an argument it's like, no, actually, like, you know, Incubus was like a they, they were like really doing some innovative things with like turntablism and like whatnot. But like when I go back and like actually listen to it, like this is not a good band. And I think the problem is like, (laughs) unlike say, you know, like Lincoln park or other acts from that era, like incubus was like, they thought they were way smarter than they actually are. I mean, first off, like if Brandon Boyd's like trying to present himself as like, you know, kind of this philosopher of, uh, you know, new metal or rap rock, like the dude should probably wear a shirt every now and again, (laughs) Now, mind you, if, like, I looked like Brandon Boyd, I'd probably not wear a shirt either. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, Drive is okay. It's like a classic CBS slash Ralph's Rock song. Nice to know you, Slaps. I like that song. Um, but otherwise, uh, you know, Stellar has its moments. Are You In is a song I listen to and, like, I need a good laugh. But, you know, when I, when I go back and actually listen to Morning View or listen to Science... Um, yeah, it's just kind of like either sublime, like if they thought they were 311 or like Linkin Park on antidepressants. Um, you know, the fact they named like their, their big follow up to Morning View, One Crow Left of the Murder. 
that's like classic overthinker rock. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's just like for, just em- embrace real? being a himbo, dude. It, like this, this reminds me of like all those albums that came out like in. Um, you know, the mid nineties when uh, like better than Ezra was like making like kind of their dark follow up to, um, you know, deluxe or, uh, you know, Afghan wigs, black love or exit. Like there's that whole swath of mid nineties, like, or wax ecstatic for that matter. Yeah. It's just like that, like darker and smarter than you really are when you're just kind of like, I don't know, like it's just be embrace being himbos. Like, you were you were born on third base. Just slide home on the himbo shit. So, man, I could just listen to you talk about Incubus all day long. Like <laughs> the, the the one crow left of the murder that drop uh, that was just beautiful. Like your knowledge of Incubus is much deeper than mine. I'll say that uh, you know, echoing one of your points, I'm I'm fascinated by this band's status as like thinking man's new metal. Mm-hmm. You know that this was the band. Like I remember. Back in the day, like Jim DeRogatis, the great Chicago music critic, like this is a band that he would talk about liking. Oh, and I, I think I think he put like Morning View uh, on a best of list, and like Brandon Boyd came on Sound Opinions, and it was like, okay, this is the band that if you don't like new metal, you can like this band because uh, it's 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 elevated. And which I, you know, to me, all that means is that like actual new metal fans probably hate this band <laughs> because, because they, because they're not that metal. They, they're just basically like hippies essentially. Yeah. Uh, and the hippiness of it, I think almost disqualifies them as a new metal band. Um, but you're right. Like it's not actually smarter. It's just uh, coming at it from a sort of self-conscious, like, arty perspective uh but i have to say that i I do like their like wussy songs (laughs) i I, you know like you know like like i like the song drive i like that song warning you know oh yeah yeah they're they're ballady type type material uh which is you know like you were talking about like lincoln park on antidepressants uh you know to me they're sort of like the aggro cold play (laughs) Uh, you know, like, <laughs> well, now it like sounds like Mo- something I might like a lot more. <laughs> well, again, like when they're in that sort of aggro cold play mode, that, that, that's usually when I like them the most. Right. Uh, but yeah, Brandon Boyd, the poor man's Anthony Kiedis, uh, perpetually shirtless, uh, but good for him. Uh, he's, he's the, uh, half naked philosopher of, uh, 2000s and late nineties new metal. I'm assuming that Kevin, is a fan of Incubus. I, I don't think he would ask us what we feel about them if, if he didn't like them. And it just makes me think that there probably are a lot of fans of this band still out in the world. Oh, yeah. And, you know, it it just reminds me, like, I had a conversation recently with, with, with uh, my friend Will Leach. I was on his podcast, and we were talking about how there are two different 90s. There's the early 90s and the late 90s. And... For a while, when we would talk about the 90s, the early 90s was the uh, was was the 90s that we talked about. And I think over time, that has shifted. And eventually, it's just going to be the late 90s. Like, that's going to be the 90s. Mm-hmm. And people are going to forget the early 90s. Just because there's more millennials than there are Gen X people. So, I do wonder 
if a band like Incubus will be elevated because of that. <laughs> you know, in the same way that a lot of late 90s bands are. Because there's just a lot of people that were young at that time and they had science and they, you know, bought Morning View and, and to them this is an important band. And the opinions of people like us are not going to matter as much. I mean, this is just something that I've seen mm-hmm. take hold over time. Uh, so I don't know. I'm, I'm curious to see how that happens. Maybe Brandon Boyd will be on the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame nominating committee at some point. <laughs> he'll take he'll take the Tom Morello spot, no. and we'll start seeing more late '90s bands uh, being put into the canon. All right, so uh, we didn't meet our meat guarantee this week because we were a little bit over 30 minutes because we were too busy talking about in order live Skrillex and Incubus, uh, which is going to delight. A segment of our audience, but I feel like we may have lost like another segment of our audience, perhaps permanently. <laughs> I disagree. I, I feel like I feel like at this point, if you're not down for like you know rehashing the best days of like the height of like music criticism in like 2012, where it was all like lists and festival coverage and like 90s alt rock. This gets a this gets IndieCast to where it is today. This is like part of this. This is like if you see like you know your favorite band like tw- thirty years in, you gotta let them do like a song or two off the new album before you know they play the hits. Yeah, I mean, I'm not apologizing because I'm <laughs> delighted. I'm delighted by these topics. I'm, I, I'm just accepting that this might be the album that turns off some listeners because it's a little self indulgent, and that's fine. Yeah. You know. You got to make those records every now and then. Yeah, let the bassist like one, let the bassist sing a song. Finally, you know what I mean. Exactly. Uh, this is our speaker box love below <laughs> episode. <laughs> we're just like we're letting it all hang out. Um, well, here we are at the meat of our episode, and it's the IndieCast Hall of Fame. We actually haven't done one of these in a while. No. Uh, but this is where Ian and I we we induct two albums each into our IndieCast Hall of Fame. And these are albums that we love, but more importantly, they're albums that we feel like have been maybe forgotten or overlooked. They're, they haven't been put into the canon for whatever reason. So we're putting them into our canon, and hopefully they will enter a larger canon after that. Is that about summing up? Is I, there I anything think, else? I think it does. Like These are not like our favorite albums of all time, but for whatever reason... They just kind of like need a little bit of a boost. Like, you know, it's like if the, it's not like, oh, we're going to like induct the, um, you know, the Babe Ruth or the Lou Gehrig's of it. It's more like the kind of remember some guys. (laughs) Exactly. So do you want to go first? What's your first album? Yeah, it's actually one called Me First. Um, So, you know, nice little give and go right there. But um, yeah, so I, I recently engaged in, you know, Again, like not to act like we spend all our time on Twitter, but yeah, a significant amount of time. And I saw like a discussion of like, you know, do you take Rilo Kylie versus Jenny Lewis's solo uh, discography debate? And, you know, like on the one hand, I, I think like Rilo Kylie more or less invented every single thing that happened in like guitar focused indie rock over the past decade. You know, you got like emo relation, like country music, Fleetwood Mac. Uh, full-blown optimism and you know so it, but when you consider like how important and how great a lot of Rilo Kai's music is the argument for Jenny's solo work is that you don't get any Blake Senate songs 
And, you know, that that's the sort of thing that, like, sets me off. Because I think that his songs on the execution of all things are, like, actually good. Um, and he has, like, one song max on the other two albums. But, you know, he, I, I, he like, provided this air of, like, kind of shittiness. Like, I've talked in the past about, like, how I need shittiness on a record to keep things grounded. And um, so the album that I'm going to talk about is actually an album that's all Blake Sennett songs. It's a band he started called The Elected. Uh, their first album, Me First, which kind of shows like where this guy's mindset is at um, in 2004. But, you know, as much as like Rilo Kiley, um, you know, was ahead of their time or, you know, prophetic in the kind of music they made. If you listen to this album now, you hear you also hear a lot of like music in 2023. Um, this was kind of like a post postal service roots indie type record. You can hear the electronic stuff going in. I think Jimmy Tamborello was on it. Um, and this is like kind of where you hear the modern confluence of like Elliot Smith style vocals with like some more uh, electronic elements, but like kind of authentic outlaw country. And, you know, this is the kind of album that like would totally be on run for cover in 2023. It reminds me of like some field medic music, uh, the runner album, which came out a week ago, which I'm really into. Um, but more to the point, like this is just like kind of a classic dirt bag album that doesn't realize it's dirt bag, which is always intriguing to me. I mean, I think there are two songs where you like, kind of like gets mad at his mom, <laughs> which, yeah, um, like two consecutive songs. Cause like, you know, his mom's like struggling with substances or whatever, but, um, yeah, I mean, this, again, this is like not a hall of fame record. I listen to it maybe once a year or once every other year when I'm just like in a 2004 sort of mood. But, um, yeah, I think this kind of makes the argument that like Blake Senate more of an artistic force than he's given credit for. I mean, like to say that you're not as charismatic or like have as good of a vo voice or like a lyricism as Jenny Lewis. I mean, like not many people do, but you know, this one, this one's for the dirt bags. This one's for the people who like the shit vibes. Yeah. I like this album too. I have not listened to this record in a really long time. <laughs> and it, that is an interesting question about Jenny Lewis versus Rilo Kiley. I mean, I probably like more Jenny Lewis albums than Rilo Kiley albums, but the dynamic of that band is really fascinating. And I, I, I do love the Fleetwood Macness of having Jenny Lewis and Blake Sennett in the same band. Mm -hmm. So maybe I like thinking about Rilo Kali more, but I'd rather listen to Jenny Lewis. I, that would probably be my breakdown there. Um, my first album is also a side project of sorts, or not of sorts, it is a side project. And, I, you know, when I was trying to think of records that I wanted to put in the IndyCast Hall of Fame, I, I went back to my old best of lists from like the 2000s and I was looking for records <laughs> that I ranked high that I haven't Ooh. listened to much lately. And one album jumped out at me from 2009, my number three album of that year behind Animal Collective and Grizzly Bear. And that album is Dragon Slayer by the band Sunset Rubdown. And uh, I was really glad that I pulled this record off the shelf, like metaphorically. I just listened to it on a streaming platform. <laughs> but um, this is a really good record. And I'm wondering like, where Sunset Rubdown is right now in, in the conversation. They actually announced a reunion tour in December, and it's actually coming to my town this spring. So I, I might go check it out. But uh, 
Sunset Rubdown, of course, is a band fronted by Spencer Krug of the band Wolf Parade. Uh, and he started this band concurrently with, with Wolf Parade. And I think like in 2009, this kind of album, you know, contrary to what you were saying about Rilo Kiley, you know, Rilo Kiley, as you said correctly, they've had, uh, you know, a big influence on where indie music is now in 2023. I, I feel like the opposite is, is true of a band like Sunset Rubdown. Like, I don't hear a lot of bands that sound like this. And it was part of the appeal for me going back to this record because it really does evoke a time where it was fairly common to hear records that tried to fuse two different ideas, this sort of maximalist rock music that was very popular in the 2000s, typified by, you know, Arcade Fire Funeral and albums of that ilk, taking that big sound and fusing it with sort of this, like, arty theatricality uh mm. that uh we look back now on i look back on it fondly but i think that tends to be an aspect of indie music at this time that a lot of people don't like no. and, <laughs> and and this album i think probably leans more in the sort of maximalist rock direction which is why i really respond to this record but uh it's such a good record. It's 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 very ambitious. There's some proggy elements to it. There's the the songs go through different movements, but it's always melodic. It's always catchy, and it has that Wolf Parade thing where you feel like the songs are constantly on the verge of falling apart, and yet they don't. You know, there's a real energy to it that is a little off kilter. That I think really balances the artiness of it like to me this doesn't feel arch in a way that maybe other indie records of of that era do although that may just be my taste i wonder if someone who didn't come up in that time maybe it would feel like a little uh too arty for them but i don't know i, I i'm curious how you feel about this album I, I i wouldn't look back this album was very well reviewed at the time it's actually the last sunset rubdown album i don't know if they're going to do a new album in conjunction with this reunion tour because mm -hmm. it did seem like at the time that like this could be like the band that supplants wolf parade you know it, it felt like it was kind of building up to that and then there hasn't been another album since like were you a fan of this record at the time this is like a rare beast in the fact that like i liked you know, I had my moments with the first two Sunset Rubdown albums and like this got like best new music in 2009. I don't think I've ever actually heard this album, which is like really hard to believe because like I was all on top of like what was happening at that time. But, you know, Sunset Rubdown was a band that like, I don't know, it always seems like they're either on streaming or coming to streaming like or off or you have to like search them under some weird term. Um, I would say that like this I think that people are like kind of more likely to, um, you know, tout the Wolf Parade Splinter Band than like Wolf Parade itself. Um, Sunset Rubdown is a band that like has, you know, I I'd say if you listen to stuff nowadays, like say Glass Beach or like Bruiser and Bicycle or like stuff that's like kind of more in the emo realm, you're going to hear stuff like this. Like Sunset Rubdown to me is like, Sometimes I'll hear like these songs. I'm like, this is unbelievable. Like I don't, I cannot imagine how like Spencer Crew like sits down and write these songs. And other times it's like, this is the most annoying shit I've ever heard in my life. I love the, I love, I just love the low floor, high ceiling 
aspect of this. And, you know, I need to go listen to this album because, like, for some reason, I just did not give it my time in 2009. Maybe I, I was just, like, too busy, you know. I, I was, like, super deep maybe into, like, Neon Indian at that time. See, I think you would like this album because okay. I, I think you're right in that it feels more like an emo record in 2023 than it did at the time just because that is the scene where you're more likely to hear that sort of, like, almost hysterical type rock music like where it like i said like where it's on the verge of falling apart musically and emotionally mm-hmm. but it somehow hangs together and uh yeah it's a great record i really like it a lot i think uh you're you're in for a treat when you uh finally check this album out yeah i did not realize they were doing a reunion tour good for them yeah i mean it's probably one of those ones where it's like you know, two dates in LA, one in New York, one in Chicago, and no, they're, like, they're, they're no, they're playing. Like oh, it's said, a real tour. Yeah, they're 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 coming to uh to Minneapolis. So I think all right. And I don't know. You know, we get a lot of Canadian bands here because we're close to Canada. So I don't know how deep into America they're going, but right. but they're definitely playing here. So yeah, I might check it out. Uh, what, what's your uh, next album? So uh, kind of a variation on a theme that seems to be taking place here of like side projects. And for me, this is also uh, like the last record part of the uh, Saddle Creek, um, you know, kind of the Saddle Creek early 2000s world. Um, As to be expected, I'm doing a 20th anniversary piece on Curse of the Ugly Organ, um, which, you know, that's the sort of album that people think along the lines of like Pinkerton or Say Anything's is a real boy is like, yeah, you can love this album, but like you got to be careful about what this says about you. Um, but you know, like while I can say the Ugly Organ is you know just like an album I can play like once a year for its like unmatched cathartic power, I think the best Tim Casher project might actually be the Good Life's album of the year. Um, this came out in two thousand four, and like prior to that, the Good Life was kind of his gothier, synthier side project. This one, it's very much a Tim Casher project circa 2004 in that it's like a concept album about a relationship. It's album of the year, 12 songs. Apparently like each song takes place in a month, even though like October leaves is like the seventh song and not the 10th. Um, but it's in more in a style of like, I would describe it as like Andy Schaff like, um, or maybe like the more country, um, bright eyes songs. Um, you know, it's like a little bit jazzy in places, a little bit country, Maybe Mike Mojis' best production job ever for Saddle Creek. It sounds fucking amazing. Um, but, you know, the, the thing I loved about this album in 2004 is that much like with Cursive, it has, it's a, you know, it's a concept album about relationships and what happens bears no fucking resemblance to any real relationship that anyone ever experiences. But, you know, Cursive and The Good Life has a way of making Tim Casher's like fucked up view of relationships seem like aspirational in a way. It's like, oh man, this seems awesome. I want this to happen to me. And, uh, you know, just a bit of a personal story. Like in 2005, like I was in my first like real relationship and like we were living in like, you know, 30 minutes apart because I had a summer job and, uh, you know, I didn't know how to like handle arguments in relationships or whatever. And, I'm like driving home from work and listening to this album thinking, you know what? I need to end this relationship. Like this seems like a good idea. I did that two hours later. I'm like on the phone begging her to like get back together. And like, you know, we did for like the next five years, but like with this album, like it just makes me think of like how I can be empathetic towards like the 25 year olds on Twitter, like that are annoying me with their hot takes 
when you're that age, like music makes you do like insane things. And, you know, even if this album like doesn't have that same jolt it did back in the day, uh, it allows me to like occupy that headspace where it's like, I'm going to take life advice from Tim Kasher right now. <laughs> you know, I met Tim Kasher like three or four years ago because I was uh, on a jury for like this film festival in Minneapolis and and Tim Kasher was also on that jury. I don't know how, hmm. how either one of us ended up there. <laughs> yeah, I'd love to know that. But he seemed like a nice guy. Uh, oh, yeah. That's my Tim Kasher story. Um, so my second and final album uh, that I'm inducting into the IndyCast Hall of Fame was inspired by uh, my recent... Uh, revisiting of Brian Jonestown Massacre, and I talked about this on the show, their, their new album that came out uh, recently in the uh, great greatest hits album, Tepid Peppermint Wonderland. And it just made me remember that like, there was a time in my life where that sort of garagey psychedelic rock was like really speaking to me. Late aughts, early 2010s, when I was living in Milwaukee, and I was like smoking pot every day, <laughs> yeah, that that was my soundtrack, and and one band that I really loved at that time, and and this album continues to hold up for me. Uh, the album is Play It Strange, and the band is the Fresh and Onlys. And I don't know if you remember this band. I'm of course, remember- I remember this band. <laughs> remembering, well, of course you would, but I'm just saying, yeah. you know, because you're a, you're a master of remembering some guys. But this is a band that um, was part of a. Uh, music scene in San Francisco that got a lot of coverage about a decade ago uh, that included a couple of acts that are still around today. Uh, VOCs and Ty Seagal would be like the two big ones from there. And I guess like the Fresh and Onlys would be like the kinks in that <laughs> hierarchy. You know, like they're not as famous as like the big dogs, but in some ways, for me anyway, uh, they made my, some of my favorite records of that time. And Play It Strange for me, uh, this record came out in 2010. To me, it's like their best album. And, you know, I think that the knock on Garage Rock is that it's all aesthetics and not a lot of actual songs. You know, like you, if if you get a certain kind of gear and you have a certain kind of haircut and you wear like the right jacket, then you can be a Garage Rock band. Uh, But I think the Fresh and Onlys uh, contradict that conventional wisdom because they really do bring i think really great pop songs uh to the fold uh the first two songs on this album summer of love and waterfall are just endlessly replayable to me really great songs uh but i think this whole album really uh really holds up i mean i'm 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 in the middle of like a terrible snowstorm right now it's like snowing Mm -hmm. like we got like a foot of snow here it's awful and it made, this listening to this album this week really made me wish that I could have like opened the windows in my office and enjoyed the springtime because it just has that air to it. It's very jangly, very melodic uh, music, and uh, you know just like one kind of perfect three minute pop song after another on this record. And uh, it was really fun revisiting it because again I had not listened to this album in a long time. I think it holds up. It's also a time capsule for me of a certain time in my life, like right before I had kids again, mm-hmm. like where I, you know, was just living in Milwaukee, going to uh dirt bag taverns with my wife and <laughs> smoking weed when I got home. It was the good life back then. Uh, but yeah, this is a great record. And I know you're not into garage rock at all, 
Did this that band, being said, you do like that, do you like this album? Uh, Tropical Island Suite is like you know you mentioned the pop songs. I'm like t- going to talk about the one that's like seven and a half minutes long. Um, this one, uh, it, 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 it does remind me of a very specific time in my life, you know, in 2010. And also just like thinking back when like bands like this and, you know, the other ones you mentioned that San Francisco garage rock world could be like the sort of thing that galvanizes the indie press. I mean, you can't, you probably aren't going to see that today, but I mean, you're also, not, you, you got to give a shot. Yeah. You will not see that today. I, I might <laughs> even say probably, I mean, you know, we're talking about, and this is sort of an unexpected theme maybe of this episode. We talked about like the, the Skrillex world of, right. of, of 2012. And this is like another thing that was going on at that time. And that's another, it, you know, talking about like a localized scene. Like that's something, regardless of whether it's garage rock or whatever, you don't see that either. You know, like all these bands in one town mm-hmm. and that being some and that being viewed as like a movement or something that also seems like a thing in the past yeah also the guy's name is tim cohen i gotta give a shout out to my people that's true is there any any relation is he like a distant cousin uh it probably but like not no relation i can be aware of yeah there's a lot of cohen's out there (laughs) yeah seriously We've now reached the part of our episode that we call Recommendation Corner, where we talk about something that we're into this week. Ian, why don't you go first? All right, so we got a recent email about the uh, Meet Me in the Bathroom documentary that was disappointed that not enough time was spent looking at, like, liars or, you know, like, bands like Black Dice who were around doing the kind of grimy, like, doing bad coke in an industrial park sort of noise and dance punk stuff happening, which, you know, understandable, but... If you actually like want that kind of music like happening in 2023, boy, do I have a record for you. Um, it's an album that's out, uh, I believe, today uh, from an act called Model Actress, like model backslash actress, but spelled I-Z at the end. Uh, their debut album, Dog's Body. And this is really bringing back that early aughts bad vibe sort of music. I mean, there's a lot of like, you know, dance punk percussive early liars some of the songs, the vocals remind me a lot of Juju. Um, you know, there's maybe recent Daughters. You know, I know that band's been canceled, but there's like a massive void for stuff that sounds like that. And it's all very like abrasive, but like weirdly like danceable and accessible. Produced by the same guy who did uh, the Hotel Year's Goodness. But like, I mean, this guy does a lot of stuff like Lingua and Nada and uh, Battles and such. But yeah, I mean, I, I'm... I've heard like a little bit of like liars revivalism happening recently. Like maybe it's just two records and you know, it won't go any further than that. But yeah, I would say that this one, like if you really, really, really are up for, and again, this is another theme of this episode, at least for me, shittiness, bad vibes, this is going to do it for you. So recommend this one uh, quite highly. So I'm going to recommend an album that is also out today. It's called Strange Dance, and it is the third solo record from Philip Selway, the drummer from Radiohead. I interviewed Philip. Uh, my story ran this week on Uprocks, and uh, I just want to say this is a good record. And I, I genuinely like his solo records. And if you're wondering what his records sound like, I would say they kind of sound like Radiohead, but like uh, <laughs> with Philip Selway singing. They, they, that's essentially it. I I think this new album 
is his best solo record yet. It reminded me a little bit of like a moonshape pool in that it's very dreamy. There's a lot of orchestral aspects to it. Um, not as good as that record because Philip Selway isn't as good of a songwriter as Tom York. But look, we're not getting a Radiohead record, I don't think, anytime soon. I have a theory that they're basically broken up. Uh, mm. uh, but maybe they'll get back together for a tour or something. I mean, when I, when I interviewed Selway, he was a very nice guy. And he was very patient with me, and I'm sure he's used to this because I asked about three or four questions on his record, and the rest of my questions were just about Radiohead. And I, I was really trying to get him to talk about whether they're still a band or not. And you know, he uh, he said something that I thought was interesting, where he basically said, "Everything that we do on our own falls under the umbrella of Radiohead." Uh, so the smile. The Ed O'Brien solo stuff, the Phil Selway stuff. They're like the Wu-Tang Clan at this point. Doing their own <laughs> records, but it's all kind of the Wu-Tang Clan, but not really. So, I don't know. It, that answer just made me feel like I don't know if they're going to work together again as a as a five-piece band. But they're going to remain friends. And maybe that's the way you stay friends, by not mm-hmm. going to the studio. I hope to be wrong. You know, maybe I'm just saying this because I'm hoping to reverse jinx myself. Uh, but uh, which I guess now I've I've uh, ruined the reverse jinx by saying that out loud. But uh, anyway, for Radiohead fans, this is a record that I think if you play it at the same time as the Smile record, it'll sound like a Radiohead record. <laughs> you know, it's like Zyrica in here. You know, exactly. You gotta, like get the get forced disc players and. I just love that, like you mentioned, the possibility of like it being like, like Radiohead being Wu Tang, and then I gotta like ask myself, like, what does that make the unbelievable truth? Like, what's the Wu Tang equivalent of that? Oh man, <laughs> that I, no, I we're getting I, deep. I, we're getting deep. I, here. Yeah, I do. I do. Like maybe for a future indie cast hall, or maybe just like a theme episode where we listen to like the brother, like you know, uh, Tom York's brother's band, or. Uh, the guy, uh, Jonathan Davin of Corn, his cousin Adima, that band. We're just gonna do, yeah, that's what we're gonna do in a future episode. You know, if, if you thought the our live episode was like full of substance, wait till you hear our unbelievable truth episode. Yeah, we're gonna drive away our last remaining listeners. I cannot wait for that to happen. <laughs> Well, thank you all for listening to this episode of IndieCast. We'll be back with more news and reviews and hashing out trends next week. And if you're looking for more music recommendations, sign up for the Indie Mixtape Newsletter. You can go to uprocks.com backslash indie, and I recommend five albums per week, and we'll send it directly to your email box. (laughs) 